I really just don't think he was involved in killing him. I, I never could say that he wasn't there, but I just don't think he was involved in killing him. Not that if you could have seen him at that, at that time. Now, to me, if Jens or someone like him was gonna kill somebody to satisfy Elizabeth, why not just get a gun, go in and shoot him, and get out of there? Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of our podcast, The Jens Soaring Case, A New Verdict. Within the context of criminal investigations, wounds and injuries on the hands of perpetrators constitute a revealing detail, providing not only physical evidence, but also insights into the psychology and behavior of perpetrators and victims. In an area where every detail counts, such indicators are invaluable. Hello, Ralph. It's good to have you with us again today. Hello, Daniela. It's my pleasure. Ralph, what importance do you attach to wounds on the perpetrator in a trial? Or is that not your task at all, but that of the investigating authorities beforehand? When it comes to interrogation methods, for example, we learn that there are standards and training. What about injuries on the perpetrator or suspect? Yes, that's what the police do immediately after the crime or when the perpetrator is caught. Then photographs are taken and he is physically examined, down to the fingernails, and so forth. Then a forensic pathologist evaluates whether the traces found on the perpetrator can or cannot be attributed to the crime. It was the talk of the town, whether you were in Manita, Bedford, Lynchburg, Huddleston, whatever areas of Bedford County you might be in, everybody knew about this case. And they knew the gruesome details of how the Hastings were murdered and what the crime scene looked like. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Tammy Martin describes the impressions of the people in Lynchburg were shaped by these cruel murders. We know how shocking those horrible autopsy photographs are. How realistic is it for a perpetrator to walk away from a struggle with victims, like the one that occurred at the Haysom house, without injuries? This is not a question for the judge to decide, but for an expert witness. But my impression is that it is very unlikely. Stanley Lepica states that it takes enormous physical effort to slaughter people with a knife in such brutal fashion. What happened to those people was just unconscionable. And for somebody to do that continually, I mean, there was an, an effort to murder those people physically, a physical effort. I mean, you can, you can shoot somebody and kill them and, and you don't feel any different. But to mutilate bodies like that and do it without trying to get caught and worrying about that 
and slipping and sliding around in blood. And then, and then for the grand finale, cutting their throats. I, I mean, if, if somebody asked me or I was uh, to say, hey, will you, will you do me a favor? Will you go kill this person? And I'd never done anything like that, okay? I would be scared to death, okay? First of all, I would be thinking, okay, I, I got to get in there and get out of there real quick. I wouldn't be hanging around. I imagine that hand wounds must not necessarily be of evidentiary value. I mean, they are not exclusive proof that the person incurred them while committing a violent crime. Even ordinary daily activities can cause similar injuries. Therefore, it would certainly be important to look at the entire context in combination with other evidence. Certainly. I mean, it always depends on when wounds were observed at what point in time. But the general case is, as I said, you have a crime, for example, an assault, and a victim. Then you find a suspect relatively quickly, let's say within 24 hours. Upon physical examination of the suspect, you might find bruises on the chest and a split lip, possibly other wounds as well. And then it's the investigator's job to determine whether they are due to the crime or not. And it can be, of course, if a week or several days have passed, that they may have been incurred while playing soccer or engaging in some other activity. But as I said, that is the task of the investigation. I think we should also explain again for our listeners what wounds on the perpetrator are all about. In the world of criminology, there are numerous indicators that can point to the identity or actions of a perpetrator. And one crucial detail is, of course, the wounds on the hands. They can provide not only clues about the crime that was recently committed, but also insights into the dynamics of a crime scene. And you talked about bruises, cuts, abrasions, bite wounds. A major reason why they are so significant is that they often prove a direct physical confrontation between the perpetrator and the victim. Yes. Also, it always depends on the testimony of the perpetrator or the victim. And one can very strongly determine, for example, whether a bruise, that is a contusion, can be explained by the crime or not. And as I said, that is the task of forensic pathology. It always depends on the concrete individual case and on the time frames. If we look again at the Soaring case, the observations that a witness allegedly made at the funeral are only of limited significance because they do not necessarily have to be attributable to the crime. What would one do if one had examined Jens that day? One would look at the age of the injuries. When did they occur? And then the second question would be, what caused them? But all that was not done and there are no further findings about it. But basically, what we're talking about right now is absolutely routine work, both in the U.S. and in Germany. Yes, you also mention an absolute peculiarity in the case, because this witness, Donald Harrington, only testified much later that he had seen injuries on Soaring's hands and face at the funeral service for the Hastings. And Chip Harding also commented on that. He was around a number of people, even people that probably don't like him, for several days. None of those people were called to say they saw these injuries. 
So I got some contacts that enabled me to figure out a lot of the students that were sweetmates of Elizabeth and Yin's. So I started going through that, and a lot of them wouldn't talk to me. They didn't want anything to do with it, but two of them did. One who currently is a, a doctor in the state of Maryland who was very specific that he had dinner with Jens and Elizabeth just within days after the bodies were found, and he was with them for several hours, and he said, I absolutely observed no cut hand bandages or bruise on the face. And he was a student friend? He was a student at the time, and he's now gone on and got his medical degree. And he said, no contact with them since they left the University of Virginia. So it's not like it's an ongoing friendship at all. So he's very believable. The other person I found was a woman who is now a practicing attorney. And she was a sweet mate, and she was around Yens and uh, Elizabeth even before the bodies were even discovered when they were back at the University of Virginia from uh, going up to Alexandria. She was around them multiple times, and she was one of the ones that when Mrs. Massey came to inform Elizabeth that her parents had been killed, she was one of the ones that went out and found them on the university grounds and brought them back. And she said, I'm absolutely certain there was no cuts on the hands or bruised face. Chip Harding also mentions two suspects here. And what's odd with regard to the injuries, no one else reported them. Jens Soaring spent the week after the funeral with the Masseys, friends of the Hasem family. Mr. Massey was a medical doctor and didn't see or report any injuries. And Howard Hasem was a medical doctor as well and didn't see anything either. In addition... Jens said in one of his confessions that he had cut his hand during the altercation and bled heavily. That again is something that one would have chalked up the doubt side of the equation. One would have argued that if there had been this altercation, one should have consulted and questioned a forensic pathologist or other expert witnesses on that matter. If these experts had confirmed the likelihood that these types of injuries did result from that type of physical altercation, one would have had to infer that the people in close proximity to Jens Soaring after the crime should have noticed such injuries. If they testified they had not seen any, then they did not exist. So here, we have another significant point that raises doubts a jury should have considered before finding someone guilty. Plus, there is also the issue of luminal testing, because blood would have leaked from these cuts as well, of course. Exactly. In the previous episode, we briefly talked about the neighbour and her observations. Another witness claiming to have seen something is Donald Harrington. Please explain to us how important witnesses are, and, perhaps, the uncertainty factor involved. Generally, the witness is the worst evidence there is, because we only get to know their subjective impressions. What I also want to say is that very few witnesses lie in court but reproduce the images they have in their mind and what they think is right. But what they think has nothing to do with the objective view. This also applies to the witness at the funeral. It may well be that at the time he made this statement, he was firmly convinced that these injuries had been incurred by Yen Soaring, while in fact, they were not present. 
you always have to ask yourself, why would someone deliberately say something that is not true about someone whom he does not know at all? He does not owe anything to the person about whom he is testifying. There's no relationship conflict there. So what is the motive for deliberately saying something that is not true in the certain knowledge that one is committing perjury? That is to say, very few people lie consciously, but it may well be that we are dealing with a distortion of reality here, that the witness observed something he thought were injuries. This impression then entered his mind where it became firmly ingrained, especially against this background. So now we have a situation where the witness might think, this has just happened, this is quite terrible. We need a perpetrator, we have to do something about it, and I can contribute to it. And maybe I am particularly significant and important there. And that's how you can evaluate this phenomenon under certain circumstances. Another example of uh, what I would call Elizabeth's fabulous tendencies was her description of Jens when he, by her account, came back to Washington from having committed the murders. She opened the car door and, in her words, <clears throat> he had a sheet draped over him and he had a large quantity of blood on it. He's wrapped in a sheet, a bloody sheet. In Germany, we would set aside a certain amount of time, probably half a day. Then we would hear the forensic pathologist who examined the perpetrator and the victim and prepared expert opinions on all of those things. He would be asked, for example, can these murders occur without a physical altercation? Can they be explained? Is it conceivable that the perpetrator did not sustain wounds? And so forth. All this would be questioned and brought together at this point. I talked to all the experts about these points, and Stan Lepeck has chuckled, telling me that he has seen it all in the course of his FBI career. But he also thinks it's very unrealistic that someone would not leave any marks or have any injuries in a fight where victims are killed in this way. Especially when it comes to the use of a knife, it is very unrealistic for the perpetrator to walk away without even a scratch. Professor Thomas McClintock also explained that to me. Of course, he has seen many crime scenes and all the ramifications involved, such as DNA and other forensic evidence left at the crime scene, but also the various types of injuries which in turn cause DNA to be left at the crime scene. And basically, they all concur that Jens Suring did not have injuries. I don't know if you can tell just from the injuries. You would also have to clarify the ratio between Derek Hasem's height and weight with the help of an expert. I don't know how tall and heavy he was. And based on Jens's height and weight, you have to ask yourself, is it at all possible for a smaller person to cut the throat of someone who may be taller by a head? How does that actually work? What must have happened there, and what could have been the ultimate consequences? At the scene of the crime itself, there were no signs of a struggle in the way they should have been. These are all things that should be routine work, but somehow have not been properly sorted out. The big problem remains. 
Everybody just focused on this confession and put aside anything that might have cast the slightest doubt on the perpetrator's identity. Instead, they kept saying over and over again, but he confessed. He confessed to the crime, after all. This is the only way you can make sense of the jury's guilty verdict. There is no other explanation. Then, the testimony by Donald Harrington about the injuries is almost like the next coincidence, like the next piece of the puzzle that was revealed. And our system in Virginia to get a pardon is, you pretty much got to prove who did it. If, if you've been convicted, then prove to us who did it. And if you can't, we're not going to give you a pardon. From a criminal standpoint, if this went back to trial, Yen Suring, could I prove who did it? I don't think I could, but I could, I could, I could defend Yen Suring to the point it would be no way he'd be convicted. So by a legal standard, he would not be considered a murderer. And when people call him a murderer today, they're only using the legal standard that that jury convicted him. But they don't understand they convicted him on false evidence and there was plenty of exculpatory evidence that was held back that could have offered a defense for him. This was the seventh episode of our podcast series, The Case Against Jens Suring, A New Verdict. We discussed the role of wounds on a suspect like Jens Suring and the credibility of the associated witness. In the next episode, we talk about the criminal process as a core element of prosecution. How should we evaluate the trial of Yen Soaring in 1990 at that time with all the surrounding circumstances? Subscribe to the podcast and never miss a thing. Thanks for listening. You're Daniela Hillers.